I'm Kevin Chambers, technologist with NCMM, the National Center for Mobility Management. And this is Conversations with Leaders, a podcast funded by NCMM. Check out our resources aimed at mobility managers at nc4mm.org. Today, we have the final segment where I interviewed Jenna Sokor about a discussion paper for the International Transport Forum entitled Piecing Together the Puzzle, Mobility as a Service from the User and Service Design Perspectives. Jenna is a senior researcher at KTH Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm, Chalmers University of Technology in Gothenburg, Sweden, and at the time of the writing of this of the discussion paper was also a senior researcher at RISE Research Institutes of Sweden. In this final part three of the interview series, we'll focus on the rider side of mobility as a service and theoretical models for understanding rider behavior while innovating and developing MAS schemes. We're coming close to wrapping up here, and I want to ask you a more general question about systems thinking, and I want to read a quote from you from your paper. You write, in reflecting upon why MOS has not emerged as quickly as envisioned, it is helpful to recognize the complexity of the transport system, i.e. adopting a systems approach, looking at the bigger picture, the parts of the system, as well as the relationships among the parts, all interacting within a larger context. For example, individual travelers, households, workplaces, communities, public and private transport providers, including MOS operators, local, regional, national, and supranational governments, etc., all interact within the system in which MOS developments are trying to take form. Unfortunately, there is a tendency to take a more siloed approach and focus on the other needs to act more sustainably without taking into consideration where the barriers to change originate and without recognizing that improvements can and need to be made by all. Some barriers may be internal to the individual or organization, but others are external. So when I hear that, a lot of that says to me is that there's a real need to dig into the complexity of the system that MAS would require. And you make moves towards that with your IRIMS model, and there's another tool in here which I'm going to mangle the pronunciation of, but COMPIS, I think it was something like that, the evaluation framework. But I wonder if you would just speak generally to, like, within the field of transportation, how far do we have to go, do you, you think, in developing the tools and the training to manage that complexity? Say more about the user perspective and what your research has found in terms of helping users make the shift towards being able to navigate these MOS schemes effectively? I I do think there is a greater need for an understanding of what this entails, actually shift to a new way of transporting oneself and one's, one's household. First of all, I can say we need to shift to more, I think, household based thinking because, you know, we tend to talk about how the individual is choosing to travel, but in reality, we rarely make decisions on a completely individual basis. We're embedded in some kind of larger family or household context, which is is influencing our decisions in terms of our financial resources, what modes we own, the various abilities or knowledge and habits, and even stress levels, what just is easiest in that moment, our identities, the competing needs, 
not just among the family members, but also others competing needs. For example, what are the demands by the schools, by our employers, et cetera? So there's this larger kind of household context that I think would be useful to consider when talking about people's transport choices. And then, of course, you have other contexts as well. You have the geographic context that's influencing things in terms of infrastructures, mode access, cost of living and, and transport in the area, even weather patterns and seasons. Mm-hmm. There's a larger societal, legal, and regulatory context in terms of various taxation policies, transport-related policies, urban planning and land use policies. And then you have what I call the service and organizational context in terms of what's actually being offered to people in terms of mobility services, in terms of the service designs, their business models, how they themselves interpret regulations, their internal organizational goals, how much they're willing to collaborate with each other, et cetera. You and your household then also have to perceive a good enough match between your needs and what's being offered by the mobility services to be able to use them or even be willing to use them. So there's all these kind of different uh, contexts that are affecting decisions. And I can mention a couple potentially useful models that can help understand this. One is developed by one of my colleagues at Chalmers, Helena Strumberry. She calls it the action space model which describes, quote, the actions that are available for an individual to act upon in order to realize their goal. And so she talks about three different types of so-called action spaces that are constrained by different factors. So you have the actual action space of what's objectively possible, which is influenced by, say, resources and capabilities, things like infrastructure, mode access, legal constraints, physical and cognitive abilities, financial resources, etc. And then you have the perceived action space or what you perceive to be possible. This is shaped by knowledge, for example, awareness of the options, about your habits, about your stress levels, and these kinds of things. And then you have the considered action space or what's subjectively possible. And these are constrained by things like your identity, your values, and the competing needs of, you know, the people around you. So for any action to be potentially undertaken, it has to fit within all of these spaces at the same time. You have to be able to undertake an action, and you have to perceive it to be possible, and you have to consider it as an option. And then and only then, you might actually do it. Another model that we found very useful to understand what's happening in Moss with users is the is Rogers diffusion of innovation theory. And this helps understand the process by which innovations spread through society by way of adoption or rejection. And this was originally developed decades ago and it had to do originally with agricultural innovations. But it works quite well with many different types of innovations. So he outlines a five-stage so-called innovation decision process, where first you have to become aware of the innovation by being exposed to it, but you don't necessarily have information on it. So then you get into the persuasion stage where you become interested in innovation and you start looking for information about it. Then you get to decision phase, 
where you start weighing the advantages and disadvantages of it and trying to decide whether or not to try it out in your life. After that is an implementation phase, which my colleague Helena Strombay actually broke down into two stages in her work. Acclimatization, where you're starting to use it and getting to know it, and then normalization, where you're starting to use it on a regular basis and really fit it into your personal circumstances. And then only after that do you get into the confirmation or continuation phase where you actually decide to, to keep using it or not. We've analyzed several cases using this theory, and we found it very useful, to, again, to help break down this process, this adoption process, not just adopting moss, but even adopting new travel behaviors that come along with using moss. And, and people, when they're adopting this, they evaluate, they do an, kind of an internal evaluation of the innovation based on its characteristics, including things like, is it compatible with my needs? Do I perceive a relative advantage compared to what I was doing before? Is it easy enough to learn or is it too complex? Is it easy to try out? And can I watch other people doing this to try to see, you know, how it's working for them? And this is actually the origin of the idea of these adopter categories of innovators, early adopters, early majority, late majority laggards. That's right. actually kind of the background to this. For example, in analyzing the, the EC2B case where the moss integrated in, into the housing that we've done, and we've seen that there have been different drivers and barriers in these different phases of the innovation adoption process. I can give you some examples. In the persuasion stage where you're interested in innovation and trying to get information about it, an, an enabler or a driver can be that you intend to use your car less or you're thinking about selling it or that you see that Moss offers you car sharing, for example, can offer a wide range of different types of vehicles that can be useful in different situations. But on the barrier side of things, it could be that you just don't perceive that your household has a need for different types of mobility services or that you don't think the services that are being offered are comprehensive enough, for example, or for some reason you're excluded from access that you don't have a driver's license or that you have some physical hindrance that allows you to not use them. And in the decision process, when you're actually kind of weighing the advantages and disadvantages of deciding when to try it out, Enablers could be that you're very interested in new things and trying new things or that you get some kind of incentive, like a free trial period or cheaper tickets or something, whereas barriers can be things like the onboarding process is just too long and too difficult. In, in the case here that all the instructions were in Swedish, so people that were non-Swedish speakers just didn't, it was too much of a barrier. Or in the case that they were, you know, they're moving into this new housing complex, it just felt overwhelming for them. They just had so many things to do while they were moving. They couldn't handle learning a new way of transporting themselves on top of it. But then as you get more and more into this adoption process, for example, when you're getting into the normalization phase, where you're really using the adoption on a regular basis and trying to fit it into one's own circumstances, I mean, there we saw very different types of drivers and barriers where a driver or enabler could be that 
in this case, they found that the cargo bikes were really super, the electric cargo bikes were really super useful for, you know, transporting things around in the city and helping get up the hills on the way back to the housing complex and that you got more exercise and these kinds of things. But on the barrier side, then you really saw things to do with the app. It was under development. The functionalities were not there that had been promised. Or there was also poor internet reception in the bicycle garage, so it became difficult to deal with bookings and unlocking the bikes. And just, you know, more different kinds of practical things. The more you you get into this adoption process, the more these tiny practical things become bigger and bigger factors. So I think if you're focusing on Moss as an app, like I said, it's it's not that's not necessarily going to be a a big thing in the beginning in terms of enabling or discouraging use of a service. But as you get further and further into using the service, these tiny technical details, also in terms of you know onboarding and and customer service and all of these kinds of things just become more and more important. Yeah, I really appreciate all of that. And I, I think when I read this, you know, I, again, you know, similar to your, your framework for evaluating enablers and barriers, this approach to looking at the user experience across these different stages of using it, I found to be really thoughtful and just very readable within, you know, whatever the 20 pages of your, of your report. One of the things you wrote, and I thought this was really golden and where transit planners, mobility managers anywhere could really benefit from this research and these models is you write that understanding more about the innovation decision process and users' motives can help public and private organizations and public authorities rethink how they can better support users at all stages in the adoption process, including maintaining new behaviors if and when the service ends or after discontinuing use of the service. You know, and I, I think contrasting everything you said with the model that I think a lot of people go into, you know, with this sort of naive, technology-driven approach, you know, the if you build it, they will come thinking, you know, I think that drives a lot of failures. And how those things failed isn't really can't be evaluated. It's like, oh, people didn't want it. People didn't like it. And it's often hard to drill down into like, well, you know, maybe a few small tweaks could have made the difference. But where in that process were those barriers? I think the model that I hear you presenting allows that possibility for really understanding it and having perhaps a version two of a service that um, addresses them a second time around or iterating through the same service so that because those barriers can be found, they can be addressed. Yes, I mean, ideally, we would have an iterative design process where we would get feedback and then tweak the service, make improvements, et cetera. Uh, unfortunately, you know, the funding or the time or et cetera doesn't always allow for that, even though that's very necessary for developing good products and services in general. And like you said, they don't have to be, they're not necessarily technological issues either. I mean, in all the, in all the cases we've looked at, the onboarding processes have been a very big thing. You know, how long they are, how complicated they are, just how hard it is to 
understand all the ins and outs of the, the service and what it, becoming a customer and signing the contract and all of this kind of thing. The onboarding process is usually identified as very frustrating to people, but it can also be things like, as we saw in a completely different case, having to do with, it was called the test bikers, encouraging more people to bike on their commutes. And in that project, they offered support to the people to be able to test different kinds of electric bikes to really find what was useful for them and their households. You know, maybe some people were okay with a regular type of electric bike. Some wanted to, ended up wanting an e-cargo bike or, you know, where they could transport stuff and kids and all of this kind of thing. So the fact that they were able to test different models before making decision and then you know, have the opportunity to then buy it at the end of the project is another example of just, you know, matching the best type of bicycle to your needs. Or in the UBGO pilot, there was some limited funding to offer some economic incentive to offset costs of private cars. So the households could choose to deregister their private car from use during the UBGO pilot and get some limited compensation for like the insurance and parking and this kind of thing they'd have to maintain. So this became a very low risk way for a household to test to live without a car without having to take that huge step right now Mm -hmm. of selling a car or not. So there's, there's actually a lot of different types of support that can be offered in terms of getting people to be willing to enter this potential transition or adoption process. And like I said, there are different enablers and barriers all along the way. And it's good to understand this. And and then even in the long term, you know, well, what can we do even beyond this project or pilot or service to encourage the continuation of, of more sustainable behaviors? Like I said, offering the opportunity for people to purchase the electric bike at the end of the test period, et cetera. So I really think we need to think beyond technological fixes. Jenna, there is so much in this paper that I think is useful to people who want to think deeply about how to improve transportation options. I feel like we've only touched just a bit of it. There's a lot in there. There's so much that I think anybody who wants to plan a new service, expand, integrate services, Think about the user experience. There's a lot in here, and you reference a lot of pre-existing research so that it can really send the curious reader down a whole number of exploratory routes. So I thank you very much for writing it. I think it's very well written. It's very thoughtful. It covers such a wide spectrum and a necessary spectrum of what we need to be thinking about as we design and provide transportation. It's a real contribution to the field. So thank you. And thanks for being willing to talk this morning, tonight, about all this. Yeah, sure. No problem. Thanks for listening to this episode. Conversations with Leaders is funded by the National Center for Mobility Management. Thanks also to Alvin Charity for editing and audio engineering. Check out all of NCMM's resources aimed at mobility managers at nc4mm.org. A link to this podcast can also be found at nc4mm.org slash blog.